And so, as I was saying, ladies and gentlemen, this is Surreal Politique, Stage 1, Episode 11, Unknown Soldier. Today being Memorial Day, it might be fitting to speak a bit about military service. Of course, the martial character of human conflict emerges elsewhere besides the military, and perhaps it would be still more fitting to speak in such a broader generality. There exists no shortage of bold men who will not be hailed as heroes despite courageous sacrifice, be their names known or not. Some the news records as villains, and our task is in some measure to see history do them greater justice. The United States is not the only country with a monument known as the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier or something to that effect. No culture survives without reverence for its warriors. Some do a better job than others of recovering their dead, but whatever their military prowess, combat is unpredictable and people go missing. It is both fitting and important, then, that there be some shrine to their sacrifice. In the United States, ours is at Arlington National Cemetery. It is guarded 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, by soldiers from the 3rd U.S. Infantry Regiment, known as the Old Guard. They perform a visually impressive routine. Changing Guard and Sentinels, as they are known, have a creed which goes as follows. My dedication to this sacred duty is total and wholehearted. In the responsibility bestowed on me, never will I falter. And with dignity and perseverance, my standard will remain perfectional. Through the years of diligence and praise and the discomfort of the elements, I will walk my tour in humble reverence to the best of my ability. It is he who commands the respect I protect, his bravery that made us so proud. Surrounded by well-meaning crowds by day and alone in the thoughtful peace of night, this soldier will in honored glory rest under my eternal vigilance. While there are over 4,000 unknown soldiers buried at Arlington, the monument contains the remains of but three. One crypt contains the remains of a soldier from World War I, another the remains of two soldiers, one from the Second World War and one from the Korean War. An empty third crypt represents the missing service members from Vietnam. When power changes hands, perhaps it would be best to leave Arlington Memorial to those who died in uniform overseas. But it might also be fitting to establish a new one for those who died or otherwise had their lives destroyed right here at home. The menace we face has surely left more than 4,000 corpses in its wake almost entirely unremarked upon. Many millions more yet walk, but are no less dead, disappeared, and forgotten. I discovered not long ago an old friend of mine had died. To the gentleman who emailed me about it, thank you. 
It's not entirely clear to me what happened, but I knew him to take a pain pill now and then. It seems he got a bad one, one of those fentanyl poisoning stories you hear about all too frequently in the news. He was by no means a soldier, though no more inclined to run from a fight than to start one. He had just happened to catch some shrapnel from one of the lethal weapons being dumped on our streets by foreign adversaries every day. The people who stand up to those foreign adversaries, they might fairly be described as combatants in a war. They are not hailed as heroes. They are not granted a place in a national cemetery. They are called the most hateful of things and demonized in our press and fired from their jobs and denied the protections of our laws. I don't mean to lower in any way the experiences of the warfighter by making the comparison. They rightly have national holidays and resources allocated to them. They enjoy with few exceptions the reverence of the population, and I'm not viscerally opposed to punishing those exceptions. If anything, they deserve more than we give them, and it is quite a stain on our nation when we hear about veteran suicides and the despair that often accompanies attempts to get help from the VA. Our country should aim to place fewer burdens on our uniformed warriors by making more cautious decisions in our foreign policy and by making an organization like the Tunnel to Towers Foundation utterly irrelevant, by making sure that they and their families are returned to all reasonable levels of comfort once they have done their jobs. But it is one thing to risk one's life in combat and know that all the energies of the nation are with you. It is quite another to make precisely the same risk without those benefits or even knowing that they are against you. Some have been so overwhelmed by the despair of this that, like all too many uniformed veterans, they take their own lives. Others end up like my aforementioned friend when the despair sends them into the hellish depths of addiction, though perhaps I'm splitting hairs by discerning between suicide and accidental overdose. Drugs, like I've remarked in the past, are a suicide intended to be of a temporary nature. One cannot cope with life and checks out for a while, inclined to someday return. Sometimes it just doesn't work out that way. Others who confront this menace have a difficult time coming across such comforts. Such things are very expensive in prison, and it is those prisoners to whom I now refer. I've seen the inside of a cage or two over the course of my 43 years. My reasons for ending up there have varied in their merit. I can tell you unequivocally, it is an entirely different experience to be incarcerated for doing good than it is to be for doing bad. I've been there in both instances, and one knows the difference. It's a very mixed bag. On the one hand, ending up behind bars for doing the right thing can weigh on a man by reminding him of the injustice in the world. Particularly if he sees his cause falter in his absence, this can leave him with the impression that the conflict is lost and that he is doomed to watch helplessly as all that is decent decays and is defiled. On the other, there can be a sort of stoic, redeeming quality to the experience. There is opportunity and suffering. It builds character. When you suffer for what you know to be true and right, you know internally that you are not a simple pleasure-seeking dog or a coward unwilling to incur risks. Most of us, I should point out, need not end up hospitalized or in prison to learn this about ourselves, but should you find yourself there, it goes a long way toward removing those self-doubts we all harbor. We've all seen people who don't know what it's like to suffer. They find themselves screaming like lunatics in the street, convinced that they are among the most oppressed people in our society. We tend to mock them for this, but there's some truth to it. They've been deprived, in a sense, of what it means to be human, to be alive even. Met with no opportunity to struggle, they are weakened, and sensing this, they seek out struggle. They aim to tear down civilization itself and see us return to a sort of Hobbesian state of nature, red in tooth and claw more than an ideology. Perhaps subconsciously, they seek to see themselves deprived of the comforts which have rendered them unfit for the Darwinian contest of life. Were it not for the impact on our families, we might hope they got their wish. 
I'd be amiss not to mention the fugitives, of course. There's nothing easy about running, unless so by the day. That tracking device you stare at all day when it's not radiating your reproductive organs, it's hard to get on today without one, you might have gathered. But it's harder to get on with one if you want to hide. Cameras everywhere, credit cards, license plate scanners, speed radar, radio-activated highway tolls. You ever see those signs on the highway that tell you how long it will take to get to a given exit? You ever notice that sometimes it might be 60 miles to the destination and it says you can reach it in under an hour, but the speed limit is under 55? The government's not endorsing speeding. That's happening because your toll device is being pinged along the highway and feeding data into an automated system to monitor traffic. Biometrics are a lot more than fingerprints these days. Retina scans, facial recognition, DNA, artificial intelligence, all ever more ubiquitous, networked, and accessible to the authorities. If you're a fugitive and you get mugged, tough luck, buddy. You get shot, better not go to the hospital. Come to think of it, are you even going to feel comfortable going to a regular doctor if you get bronchitis and need so much as some antibiotics? You're going to think about it twice at least, I promise. And when the government completely takes over healthcare, don't think for one second, fugitive thought criminals will enjoy any measure of anonymity in that system. A man who goes to prison, he usually gets out someday. He gets a release date. He at least knows when it's over. Not so for the fugitive. Maybe he'll avoid the authorities until he dies of natural causes. Or maybe he'll be sitting with his grandkids someday and the law finally catches up to him. More likely, he'll have a very short run. There's a substantial likelihood he'll be killed in the process. He'll have no way of knowing the outcome until he's dead or in prison. The latter of which may at some juncture come as a relief after living that way for some period of time. At least then, he can see it out, a light at the end of the tunnel. But of course, he only begins to serve his sentence after he's taken into custody, and the longer he has been on the run, the longer the overall ordeal ends up being. When I lacked internet access, if somebody opened the front door and said go for it, I'd have respectfully declined. No sense in envying a fugitive. War is more than bullets and bombs. It's more than the risk of death and injury. It's a state of total conflict that only temporarily calms for short periods in man's long and bloody history. We are presently involved at this very moment in an information war which, from a certain perspective, might make the clarity of being in a gunfight with a uniformed opponent seem preferable in a sense. There are no non-combatants in that struggle. Targeting civilians is the whole entire point. No need to kill the soldiers tomorrow if the kids sterilize themselves today. But to venture down that path may be to stray too far from today's holiday thing, so I'll save that for another day. I don't have a great deal of respect for America's foreign policy wizards. I don't think they tend to act in the national interest. Not of this nation, anyway. I read a fascinating book once called The Israel Lobby, which tells a lot about who those interests they are serving are, and it's not a flattering account. Over the years I've been in radio, I've been asked many times if, knowing what one knows about the state of affairs, one ought to join the military. That was easier to answer when I was libertarian. I just said no. What sense is there in getting yourself killed for some dispute between central bankers halfway across the planet? Just stay home and make yourself happy. But I mentioned earlier that no culture survives without reverence for its warriors. And if there are no warriors to revere, I must imagine a society meets the same downfall. So while I'll refrain from the moment from giving any advice, I'll take this occasion to say thank you to all the warriors, living or dead, whether they wore a uniform or a ski mask, whether they collected a paycheck or a sentence, whether they're buried at Arlington or at Leavenworth, or whether they've been carried off piecemeal by the critters. And if you're fighting a day stateside or overseas, inside the walls or out, online or in the street for that matter, God bless you, comrade, and may we both live to get a bit of rest before death takes us.
217-688-1433 if you would like to be on the program. And the more you talk, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. All right. Thank you, everybody, for uh, all the feedback in the, uh, in the various chats there. Somebody asked me in the chat, when are we going to be able to see you do Omegle? As a matter of fact, I, uh, I, I have, let me see here. The Omegle thing is a little bit complicated. I have the technology worked out now. I have, I have managed to work out that I can do the Omegle video streams. I, I, have, um, I have tested this sufficiently. I don't think that I can do Omegle proper. Um, the terms of service at Omegle say that you're not allowed to rebroadcast it. And I have an anticipation that being a frequent target for, for legal action, that like some, you know, some cabal of lawyers is going to go to these people and be like, oh, hey, you know, would you like us to sue this guy on your behalf? It won't cost you anything and we'll make this guy's life miserable. And, and the fact that that potential exists um, renders the prospect of doing this not very smart. I actually sent a message to, um, I know a lot of you are aware of another content producer who does this on a regular basis, and I warned him of this prospect. I said, look, you know, you're obviously being targeted by people because of the things that you say, and, uh, and on, on account of that, you should be very careful because if you think, you know, your littering ticket is bad, uh, wait until you end up in civil court with an army of lawyers against you. And so um, I have an idea on how to go about this, but I have actually an additional hitch myself. So I am in the state of New Hampshire, and in New Hampshire, we are what is known as an all-party consent state, okay? What that means is that um, you can't, like, it's illegal for me to record my own phone calls without informing the other party on the phone. Now, there's some lack of clarity in the law about that, which is that if somebody else is not in New Hampshire, it would make sense to say, okay, well, the law protects the New Hampshire resident, and thus, I can record a phone call with somebody who's outside of New Hampshire. Um, the less reasonable way of interpreting this would be to say that as a New Hampshire resident, I am restrained by the law, and thus I could be prosecuted for a misdemeanor were this to be the case. Now, were I not under federal supervision presently, I would just take my chances with it and say, hey, you know, you obviously have no right to prosecute me for this. I've just asked my, uh, my supervisor... If, uh, you know, say I wasn't, say, say some news outlet accused me of a crime for doing this and a bunch of angry left-wing activists started calling your office and saying that I had committed this offense, would I then have, um, would I have a problem with you or would I have to be charged by New Hampshire? I've asked my, my, uh, my supervisor this question. If I, and I said, well, and let's just say, if you say, no, I wouldn't have that problem unless I was charged. Okay, well, if I was charged, would they have to secure a conviction? Or would it be, uh, or would I have to, uh, would they have to convict me? Or would you, or would I be jammed up with you as a consequence? Because here's the thing. If I was charged with the crime of recording the phone call, I, I have a defense, right? I don't think it's likely that I would be, but, you know, th these are levels of problems that one can run into. Am I going to be charged? Am I going to be convicted? Am I going to run into trouble with the federal government on account of supervision, right? And so these are the, uh, these are the calculations that one needs to make. Somebody says, well, just ask them, uh, do you mind being filmed? Okay, there's a potential for that, but I, I would go so far as to say that it diminishes the prospect. Now, 
behind the scenes, I've actually gone on Omegle a couple of times, and I've had some conversations there. And one of the other things that occurred to me is that if I, um, you know, the you you guys who are in the member chat, you you heard one of these conversations that like I went on, and I started talking to this woman, and she asked me, um, she asked me if I was a conservative. And I told her, well, you know, I think that conservatives are frankly too weak to address a lot of our problems. And then she like immediately was like, oh, are you a national socialist? And was like very comfortable with this conversation, right? And it occurred to me as a consequence of this that this she was in the UK, okay? And it occurred to me, especially, there's actually been a couple of convictions in the UK for hate speech. Um, one of them... I should have published this already. There's an episode of Full House that I, I recently recorded before this guy went on trial, and he's just been convicted. He's awaiting sentencing. Um, there's another guy, Sven Longshanks, ran a, 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 a he ran an online radio station that used to syndicate my other show, let's say. And um, the um, so these people have been you know prosecuted for this. Let's go. Let's go ahead and say that I go on Omegle and I begin discussing with people topics of a forbidden nature and i video record that and i publish it and one of those people gets in trouble like i've got an ethical problem with that and so i'm trying to think about how to do this responsibly is is what i'm trying to convey to you um but it's definitely like it's something that i want to work out one of the things that i'm thinking about doing and I know that this kind of defeats the purpose of all the technology I've been working on. Like I bought video cards and other computers and stuff to try to make this video thing possible. I wanted to go on and like do the uh, do the you know the the HT bit with the with the faces and stuff. But then it, it occurred to me that like well, as a matter of fact, like in in my experience offline doing this, I was like this could make great radio. I could just go and like talk to people on these services. And for one, like I never have to say which service it is, right? So if the you know if a cabal of lawyers go looking for somebody to sue me on behalf of, they're going to have a hard time figuring this out. And if I'm if I'm just doing audio, then it's not nearly so likely to come back to any of these people who I might be speaking to. Now I understand for those of you who are video aficionados um, that that would be a, a, a great deal less satisfying. But I have always viewed myself more as a radio personality than as a television personality. And so that is, uh, that is my personal view of that. And so these are some of the calculations that I'm making. I'll invite your thoughts on them at 217-688-1433 if you'd like to be on the program. And the more you talk, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. Let me just check on a couple of things here. And boom. All right. So I, will, uh, I got a couple of stories up here that I'll pull up for you, which are really... I thought were really great. So, as a matter of fact, let me add all these things to my favorites real quick because I would hate to lose them, and I have too many tabs open. 20230529. That's what I do every day. I, I, I pull up, like, you know, I pull up a couple of different news sites, and I fill up my, tab, my browser with tabs, and it gets to be a little bit much. And so what I do is I actually archive them, and I have them for years. Like, I have... Be, it'd be a fun thing to go through someday. Like, I have, I, how, ba how far back do my archives go? My archives go back to, um, I have archived news stories to 2015. <laughs> All the way to back to, to, as a matter of fact, I have them older. Oh, wow. 
Oh wow, yeah. I have I have news stories going back to. I have been doing this since at least September sixteenth, two thousand fourteen. That I have these things. Now I wasn't doing it every day in two thousand fourteen, but I I have archived my daily news reading for nine years now. That is actually something that has the potential to be pretty interesting now that I think about it. And so, anyway, um, I thought that this was kind of funny. Uh, Chinese internet trolls are adopting American racism to taunt black users, which I thought was pretty amusing because I don't think that it's American racism that the Chinese people are practicing, right? Like, they have their own views on race. And, like, they don't have these taboos that we have here, right? <laughs> um, it was funny, you know, you guys are obviously pretty familiar with this. I had a conversation with a woman not so long ago, you know. She, she is one of these people who was, you know, sort of endowed with this idea that, that like, racism was a white problem. And she was, she was sort of, like, aware of, you know, some negative feelings that she had. And she thought that she was convinced by the propaganda that, you know, this was some flaw of her whiteness or something like this. And uh, something that she needed to work constantly to overcome, which is what they keep on telling us. And if you read people like Robin D'Angelo, you know, this is this is the, the nonsense that they peddle and they try to convince people of and it. And it works in a shocking degree of cases. But if you take a look overseas, you get a little more information, you get better informed. Right. And uh <laughs> Uh, you know the Chinese people they they are they're not they don't think that race you know being conscious of race is bad at all they're Han supremacists you know they're not you know this you hear all the time when people try to you know demonize the Chinese with varying degrees of merit they talk about this stuff with the Uyghurs you know and you know depending on your perspective you can call it monstrous or you could just say look you know this is this is the ethnic policy of the government you know sorry you know they're trying to maintain an ethnic you know, they don't, they're not thinking that diversity is their strength, as a matter of fact. They want a uniform society, and they're communists, and so they're not going to tolerate, you know, the sort of differences that this brings about. And so you can imagine how they would feel, you know, if 13% of their population were black. They just, they just simply wouldn't tolerate it, and they're not going to allow it to occur, right? And so this, um, this, this website, restoftheworld.org, says Chinese internet trolls are adopting American racism to taunt black users. Now, granted, they do seem to have picked up on some American things here, but uh, I, I hardly think that, you know, this is, the, this is the part of American culture that has most penetrated Chinese society. I don't think that's the result of all these trade deficits. <laughs> Mitchell Sherman moved from Minnesota to teach English in China. A kindergarten teacher in the northeastern city of Liaoning he started posting selfies to lifestyle app Zhao Hongshu in February. That's when Sherman, who is black, started experiencing online racist attacks. Sherman started receiving insulting comments and direct messages from a number of accounts on the platform. These accounts had profile pictures depicting the Confederate flag, unidentified white police officers from the U.S., and even Derek Chauvin, the former police officer convicted of killing George Floyd. One comment said, Please go back to America as a slave, black man. This is embarrassing, Sherman told rest of the world. China is a nice country. The only problem I have with China is that I realize that Chinese people are so obsessed with skin color. Well, you know, you better come back to America where we don't care about those sorts of things, huh, pal? <laughs> 
You know, do you think that he went over? Do you think that he was like, I can't wait to get out of this racist country and go over to China where there will be racial harmony? Do you think that he thought that when he went over there to go teach English? Rest of the world interviewed Xiao Hongshu, Kaishu, and Du Yin TikTok sister app in China. Oh, I'm sorry, not interviewed, reviewed. They reviewed these applications, I should say, because I'm, I'm going to ch- stop trying to speak Chinese to you because I lack the talent. And found hundreds of users with profile pictures of uniformed American cops or American-sounding usernames such as Sheriff Robertson, Captain America, and Florida Jack number 5314. Others have changed their name to Abraham Lincoln, noting in parentheses that they, quote, regret liberating black slaves. These accounts post racist remarks harassing black influencers and users with slang such as emptying the magazine, referring to how some U.S. police officers have fired multiple rounds of suspects. That's right. You're only supposed to fire one round. Don't do that. While the Chinese government and social media companies have denounced racism, it remains pervasive online. News about black people in China regularly triggers xenophobic comments directed at what some fear to be an influx of black immigrants. Chinese women who date black people or have mixed-race children have also drawn sexist attacks online. It's unclear what has driven the recent spike in racist speech. Observation, my friend. Observation is what drives it. A university student at Guangdong province who spoke on condition of anonymity to protect his privacy told rest of the world that he had participated in the trolling by changing his Duyin name to Louisiana, Louisiana officer Hamlet. He said he got the idea for the name, which sounds like Hamlet from a Chinese cartoon he has watched as a child. I don't deny I'm a racist, he told rest of the world. Kawawa Kadichi, a zombie and actor in China nicknamed Shanxi Black Boy, Challenge the trolls in a May 13th video. Brothers, I noticed the recent videos related to black people are filled with comments featuring some police officers, he said. Now mention all the police officers and bring them to me. The video triggered thousands of hateful comments. According to Fang Cheng, a communications professor at the university, the Chinese University of Hong Kong, Chinese state media has used coverage of police brutality in the United States as evidence of the latter country's failures in human rights without discussing its political, uh, its historical roots or relevance to its audience in China. Oft, ordinary people often regard police brutality as a spectacle from across the Pacific, Fang told rest of the world, without realizing that when they are using the meme, they are no different from the racists in America. Fang said the online harassment of black people also showed that despite having strict censorship on a wide range of political issues, Chinese social platforms have exercised limited control over racist hate speech. Researchers have said that the Chinese government tends to rein in online racism only when it might affect China-Africa relations. Last year, domestic social media apps banned Chinese creators in Africa from live streaming after a viral BBC investigation um, accused a Chinese video maker in uh, Malawi of physically abusing at least one child. But the ban has since been lifted. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, that's really striking, right? Um, you go on Facebook and you say something about, I don't know, American foreign policy and you blame it on an appropriate group. You will be banned from Facebook forever. You will never get to come back. You go to Africa and abuse children on live stream. And, you know, you get a post ban for two weeks. 
Kai Shu and Xiao Hong Shu did not respond to requests for comment. ByteDance, Douyin's parent company, declined to comment on this article. Some social platforms appear to be clamping down on the trolling. On Douyin, some users joked that they died on the job or were put on administrative leave after Douyin removed their white cop profile pictures. One university student from Zhejiang uh, told rest of the world that Douyin blocked him from using the name Florida Sheriff Jack number 7654 after he posted racist comments. Douyin and microblogging site Weibo have also blocked a trending hashtag, Do Not Worship Foreigners which was widely used to protest against black immigrants. Screenshots on Douyin showed that more than 900,000 users had participated in the Do Not Worship Foreigners Challenge before it was taken down. Kadichi, who has been posting comedy videos on Douyin since 2017, told the rest of the world that he had closed his direct messages and comment sections following the latest attacks. It makes me feel sad, he said. I think this is cool. This is, they think this is what's trending. And then they think they're just going to join this trend without even thinking about the effects they're going to bring to other people. It's very sad. Yes, indeed it is. But it's very funny also, in my opinion. 217-688-1433. If you would like to be on the program, and the more you talk, the less I have to. So please do. Give us a call. Give me... do, 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 do. Let me let me ask you guys something. Does one have Well, this is interesting. I am uh Does one have the option? I'm not uh I'm I swear I'm not like trying to uh solicit funds here. But I wonder if you guys notice in the chat that I don't have the option of accepting dollars in the thing, is that the case or am I, am I imagining this on Odyssey? If you guys could let me know, I would appreciate it because I know that I saw it appeared different to me another time. And so I'm just interested to know if that is the case or not. Um... What the heck is going on here? It's well, Rumble's working over there. Why aren't you working on Entropy? Yeah, you are working on Entropy. Just I had to refresh the page. Like, everything has to be, of course. So. Okay, so somebody tells me that they can. Very good. All right, just uh, very good. Like I said, not, uh, not soliciting. I'm just... All it showed me was... Uh, the the um you know the library coin thing and i'm like did i lose this feature already and it doesn't appear that i have so 217-688-1433 if you'd like to be on the program and the more you told the less i have to so please do give us a call so here's another story which is less funny but i think is like i think it's still worth it and there's actually a couple of things about this uh, you know maybe i'll maybe i'll real quick i'll actually give myself a quick break and i'm going to play a quick clip from megan kelly who, you know, if you paid any attention to anything in, you know, 2016, you wouldn't think that I'd be anxious to go out of my way to, you know, tell you what Megyn Kelly is saying. But, you know, I guess maybe she's learned a thing or two in the, in the last, you know, seven years. And, you know, that'll happen in politics. And so let's hear what Megyn Kelly has to say about why people support Donald Trump. 
up against a man whose voters love him. He didn't even tap into the righteous anger so many of us are feeling. So uh, she's talking about Ron DeSantis now, I should clarify. That has inspired many of his policies in Florida. Maybe he doesn't have that gene. Maybe he's just a pen and paper guy who will pass the right legislation. And that's enough of a blessing. But he is up against a man whose voters love him, who is up over DeSantis right now by anywhere from 30 to 45 points and who has the advantage of already having been a sitting president. It is true adoration, loyalty and love between Donald Trump and his base voters, the ones DeSantis has been trying to woo, tearing them away with nice policy and Twitter isn't going to work. No, it's not, as a matter of fact. And so it's good to see um, some insight, some people learning after a while, you know. And I understand completely that there are people who are listening to the sound of my voice who are like, love Donald Trump? What? Get out of here. That guy didn't build the wall. There's still all these people here that I wished had been thrown out of helicopters and whatnot. He didn't even, you know, he didn't even execute his son-in-law. Like, what the heck's the point of all this if he's going to, you know, have that guy around or whatever? But, you know, I think uh, I have reason to suspect <laughs> that there's a certain amount of time that you might pay attention to politics after the 2024 election. And, and at some point in the course of that, you might have said to yourself, you know, Things would have been better if Donald Trump won the 2024 election. I imagine that if Donald Trump is not president come January 20th, 2025, that sometime in the course of your life, you're going to say, you know, that probably would have been better for me. I think so. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but that's the that's the operating assumption that I'm going on. And so while I've got my problems with Donald Trump, I, uh, I am still uh, pretty enthusiastic about him running for president. And there's a piece over here in, uh, not this one, this is over at The American Mind by Logan Hall. And Logan Hall um, asked, why won't Republicans move on from Donald Trump? But it's not really a question that he's asking you. He's about to tell you the answer. And what he says is that the former president retains a deep, intuitive bond with the national base. What some mainstream conservatives and pundits aren't considering, given our bleak 2024 electoral landscape, unresolved DNC-sponsored mail-in voting, open door, open border, I should say, with millions of people streaming across it, an administrative state and media complex actively colluding and working against the people, is that Trump's era was, and probably is, the last time flyover country will ever see executive representation in Washington again. Well, that's a bleak prospect indeed. Let us ponder that for a moment, friends, shall we? I would go so far as to say that this guy's wrong about that. Now, I should maybe I shouldn't say about that. If the rest of the country can't find executive representation, as he puts it, in Washington, well, then they are going to cease to recognize the executive representative in Washington. And that, my friends, is going to be a disaster, like beyond any measure of scale that I think most people have contemplated, okay? The 
United States has the world reserve currency and you and and just pulling the rug out from under that is not going to it's going to destabilize things in a fashion that I really don't think anybody's going to find very beneficial. I don't know how to unwind all of the mess that we're in. I don't know. That's why I'm not president. But um you know, I I picture a scenario where you know, the people of this country can't reconcile their differences. I think that that time is probably here. And the only way that I can uh, figure to uh, deal with that issue is for someone somewhere approximately closer to my point of view being in charge and telling the other side that they don't get what they want, okay? That's why I'm very big on the whole realpolitik thing, okay? Whatever we have to do to accomplish that, let's do that, okay? Because the alternative is, well, there's two alternatives. One is we're ruled by Democrats, and I'm not going to put up with that, okay? <laughs> I am not going to tolerate that under any circumstances. You really, you really have to understand that. And so because I'm not going to tolerate that, um, we better figure out how that's not going to happen because I don't want to deal with the eventuality of eternal Democrat rule because I would not say on this production, what that would entail, okay? I would not I would not utter those words here because this is a nice family banker-friendly production, you follow? And so, because I would not even speak of the consequences of that eventuality, we must figure out some alternative to it. And so, I very much hope that the what he's referring to as flyover country um, is not eternally cut off from executive representation in Washington because, you know, one of the... One of the eventualities that would come, you know, you don't see, I'm not going to say, you know, how you reach this point because you, you try to get there and, of course, people are going to stop that, going to try real hard to stop it. But they would eventually cease to recognize Washington as an authority over them. They're not going to be governed by, you know, the, the transgender president or whatever. They're not going to say, OK, universal compulsory transgenderism for all kindergartners is, you know, rapidly where the Democrat Party would like to take us. And. You know, I don't think the people with all the guns are going to do that. I think they're just going to say no. I think that at some point you're going to you're going to you're going to have things are going to come to a head and, and they're not going to they're not going to take it. And so, you know, should that eventuality occur, then America's place in the world is over uh, to the benefit of the Chinese, of course. And so um, you're going to have a situation where America is going to be at conflict internally. They're not going to be able to focus any, on anything externally. We're certainly not going to be in control of the world reserve currency when half the country doesn't even recognize the authority in Washington and the authority in Washington is printing dollars to try to oppress the rest of the country. It's just not going to work. And so things are going to fall apart, and I'd say probably pretty rapidly. And so I would far prefer to avoid a situation where uh, um, the rest of the country is cut off from executive representation in Washington, and we got to make sure that, uh, that Mr. Hall is incorrect. But that's definitely going to start with not another four years of Joe Biden, okay? You got to have Donald Trump go in there or whoever. You got a better idea, you know, somebody's got to go in there. Somebody's got to fill that office in 2025. And if you got a better idea, I'm all ears, okay? But let's just think about who's going to be president in 2025 because that actually matters. Um, and so the point that he's making is that, okay, they might have already seen their last president. If it's If it isn't, you know, if they haven't seen their last one, then the, the next one is probably going to be it. Okay, I'm being told, I'm being told that the phones aren't working. Stand by, ladies and gentlemen. 
why wouldn't the phones be working? Your call-in system isn't working, can't hear you. Well, that is, I appreciate you letting me know about that, sir. I'm, I wonder how many people have hung up on me already. Um, well, wait a second. What is going on here, calling studio? What's happening? Well, my friend, are you on the line? Hang on a second. Sorry, ladies and gentlemen. 217-688-1433 is the number that isn't working, as I'm being informed by somebody on Telegram as we speak. And so... Yeah, yeah, go ahead and do that, please. Yes, please. So, I'm just... I, I apologize for this. You know, it's always something. Always something. Um... How would that... Oh, you know what it probably is? I get it. I know what's going on. I know exactly what's happening. So thank you for informing me of that, friend. I will fix this right now. I know what to do. This is... Um, no. Yeah, default microphone, USB. Manage. Why would you... Yeah, that's the right one. It's the right microphone. What the heck is going on here? So, my, this, uh, my, an individual is telling me that he can't hear me. Now, friend, I need you to stay on the line, okay? Don't hang up the phone. Don't hang up. Don't hang up. Okay, you just heard it beep, but you don't hear me. Okay, so look, don't hang up. Just stay right there, okay? You heard it beep again. That's my touch tone. That's me talking to you. Let me try to figure out why you can't hear me. You know, we had this problem the other day, and when I... What I what I ended up doing was I um I used uh, Skype. I, I was using Skype before, I should say, and I was using Skype before, and Skype was like not picking it up for some reason. So I'm like, okay, well, the hell with you, Skype. I'll go use Google Voice, and then I used Google Voice in the prior show, and it worked. And now this individual is telling me that he can't hear me all the same. And that is all types of problematic. Uh, you still can't hear me, I take it. Okay, friend. <laughs> all right, let's do this. I've got an idea. We'll do something else. Manage, and we'll change this. We're going to use... We're going to use... Why? Why... Yeah, I know you can't hear me. Hang on a second. Why don't you see the... The camera microphone. The camera microphone should be available. Why can't I use the camera microphone? Come on, 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 do it, what the... Oh, that's right. Because you don't have a camera connected to you. Uh, this is a different computer, that's why. And so, check, 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 check. Oh, <laughs> I know what it is. I just figured it out. I'm sorry. This is actually a very mundane problem. 
<laughs> okay. Yada yada yada. Okay. That actually was not nearly. That was not nearly so difficult as I thought it was. And so, uh, sir, I'm sure you can hear me now, right? No. Is that? Yeah, yes, I can. Okay. All right. Very good. Very good. Very good. So, uh, yeah, I know what happened here. Uh, thank you very much for informing me of that problem and giving me the opportunity to fix it, friend. You're on Surreal Politics. How can I help you today? Not a problem. Thank you for having me on. Um, you, you, you always uh, stir me up. You know, you, you, you're opening. Uh, I went to go see The Unknown Soldier when I was a kid. And, it, you know, it, if you've never seen it or if anyone's never seen it, it's worth it's worth looking at, you know, uh, you know, growing up as a patriotic American, you, you read history and stuff and you go and you see people respecting soldiers and the Vietnam black wall with all the names on it. You know, I mean, it makes an impact on you, especially as a kid, you know? Yeah, I, I imagine it would. I mean, I, uh, I'd never been to that particular memorial, but I, um, especially as a kid, I, I liked patriotic things for sure. And, and, uh, you know, there's not a whole lot of things that um, inspire more patriotic reverence, say, than military things. Yeah, and I wanted, you know, I appreciate your production because it gives me so it gives me an, uh, a chance to kind of work through some ideas that I've been working through myself, and uh, I wanted to work through this idea with you because I'm trying. This is something that I've been trying to figure out, and you know, I think even you're reading the story about China and the racism in China is you know, it's, it is pertinent to everything that we see going on because for the, you know, for the reasons you mentioned, but, uh, uh, the, the, what, what comes to mind is, uh, I saw an interview. There's a comedian named Alex Stein. He's on the Glenn Beck network, uh, the blaze. Right. And, uh, he's a comedian. He does like very strange, edgy humor. You know, he goes to like city council members dressed as a transgender and stuff like this, but, did an interview with an ex-soldier, ex-NFL player I saw a few days ago, and um, you know he—it's he, a you know it's a comedic show, but he asked him some serious questions, and he said, you know, what do you think about the military? You know, having the transgender leader, admiral person, and all this, and he was basically like, you know, I can say that some of the best people I've ever known are in uniform, you know, currently and 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 as veterans, but he said. At, at the top and at the political level, he's like, they're obviously trying to turn the military into like a, what the, what uh, Mao Zedong did and what the French revolution, where they're trying, they're going to eventually try to turn it against his people. And so, and he's like, he, he said also, uh, his name is Jake Beckett, B E Q E T T E or something like that. He, he, you know, it's, it's kind of a weird spelling, but, uh, he, but he said, uh, he, he said, something along the lines of, uh, you know, eventually they're going to try to turn the military against the, the, the people. And, uh, and he's like, you know, the, the Republicans seem to have this thing where they can't ever go against the military. And he's like, that's like their Achilles heel. And I just wanted to kind of get your feedback on what do you think about, about that? Well, are, are you asking me, you've brought up a number of different things, and I'll just try to ask for a narrower point to respond to. The idea that the, the, that the Republican Party can't go against the military, is that the, uh, the more narrow point that I can address? Is that fair to say? Well, I have a more broader point, but yeah, I, I guess to start with, that would be my, my basic point is like, do you, how do you think, you know, 
as re, as the Republicans go forward, how do you think they can kind of balance like being pro-military, but obviously trying to weed out the people who are trying to turn the, the military against its own people? Well, I think that the way to do that is to to take a pro-military stance of I want to save the military from these terrible things that the Democrats are doing, right? The pro-military stance is, I don't want to send you to die for no reason. The pro-military stance is, I don't want to turn you into an, a transgender advocacy organization. That is the pro-military position, you know. And so, you know, they don't, they, they don't have to and should not um, take an anti-military stance. And, and as a matter of fact, you know, in the realpolitik of political power, you know, if things go sideways and elections no longer are the means by which to decide who runs the country, the military is going to be the de facto leader. And so you, you just as a matter of, you know, realpolitik, you, you can't be anti-military and, and try to wield power because that'll be the end of it, right? You know, the idea that, um, you know, the 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 situation at the end of the Trump administration when Mark Milley came out and was like, oh, well, the military is going to uphold the Constitution one way or the other, you know, was like, hey, you know, I will use my influence in the military to remove you from power, sir, and I don't care what happened with the election. You're out of here, and I'm going to go serve the Biden administration, okay? You know, if somebody in the, you know, if, you know, Flynn had been in there, say Flynn was the top, you know, military general, you could have had a very different outcome in 2021, you know what I mean? So, you know, it's very important for your party and your, you know, your ideological faction and everything that you do to be on the side of the military. How, and you can, you can phrase that in different ways. You know, the Biden administration says, I'm on the side of the military because I'm very accepting of your gender identity, right? You know, and I think I would go so far as to say that you could, um, you could garner more military support for your cause by saying, hey, we don't want these, ooh, this is surreal politics, sorry. We don't want these lunatics ruining your institution, and we're pro-military because we don't want to turn you into a commercial for transgenderism. And so, you know, it's you have to be pro-military, but it's a question of how you phrase it, you know. Yeah, and one thing that I have one small point, and then I, I have a broader question that I want to pose to you, and I'll jump and I'll jump off of here so somebody else can call in. Um, the I, I am definitely noticing that people are, there are there are elements within the right wing, the conservative movement, that are starting to take a more nuanced approach, like we're talking here. And, you know, they're starting to realize, like, you know, you know, the Democrats just say that they care about democracy and uh, the Constitution, but they're more than happy to subvert it all day long if it meets their needs. And I think there's a lot of conservatives and right wing and uh, people that are starting to realize, like, if we don't start playing by the same rules that they are playing by, we are going to lose and it's not going to be good for anyone involved. You know, and um, and I think that's kind of what people are coming to the conclusion of. And I think. The reason I mentioned that, that interview is because he was kind of alluding to those things as well. And um, what I'll also say is when you look on the on the grand scheme of things, you know, it, like they, they have this with the perception, at least, that we're on the edge of nuclear war with Russia and so you know, China is our enemy. And at the same time, they're trying to it seems like they're trying to purge the, the military of any actual, you know, red blooded American who has a 
pair of balls, I guess is the best way to put it, right? I mean, it's like, you know, it seems like they're trying to weaken America both in image and in its strength, uh, um, at least, at least, you know, with anyone with, any, with a bit of discernment, right? And so as, as we go forward, I just want to uh, ask you, like, how do you see all that playing out as far as, like, um, you know, going forward, uh, do you think they're really trying to weaken America or is this like some sort of like 5d chess thing that we don't, uh, kind of understand. And, and, and I don't expect that we know the answer, but you know, just, just for fun, like what well, I just wanted to ask you what you think about. Well, I, I think that the, the Democrat party in every ounce of their energies is trying to weaken the United States. And I, I think that they are doing so largely, um, at the behest of foreign interests. I, I think that that's a subversive effort by a coalition of foreign governments who are dissatisfied with, the, with America's place in the world order and are, they have glommed on to anti-American factions you know, within the United States and showered them with resources. And, um, you know, and don't get me wrong, the, the Chinese government in particular is, you know, subverting the people in the Republican Party too. You know, um, Peter Schweitzer's book, Red Handed, was a very interesting read, um, and he talks about people in the Bush family and all this stuff. You know, everybody's getting rich in China if they're screwing the country over, right? Um, and so that's a very real thing, I'd, I'd say. And so that's definitely, I think it's very intentional. I think that foreign entities are subverting our government to work against our interests. I think transgenderism is a major part of that. I think it's I think it's their favorite part, actually. And that's why it's unsurprising that it's one of the favorite things of the Democrats. You know, there's no there's no constituency for that. Nobody nobody's like, hey, you know what? I was gonna send my kid to public school and have him learn to grow up to like be a man and have a job and have a life and stuff. You know what I would really like? I'd like you to cut off his genitalia and send him home crying every day. Nobody signed up for that. Nobody's voting for that. Nobody believes that that's a good idea. And and nobody, importantly, nobody believes that that's a good electoral strategy, okay? Whoever's doing that believes that they will win elections despite the will of the voter, okay? So, you know, the people who are doing that, you, you know, they talk about, you, you say the 2020 election was stolen, and people say you're a crackpot. I say, well, you know, the Democrats certainly believe that it was stolen. Otherwise, they wouldn't behave like they do. They would be trying to, you know, at least pretend to do something that the people want. They, they wouldn't be doing things that are undescribably unpopular if they thought that they had to face the will of the voter, right? And so, you know, that's what I, that's what I think is going on with our government. I think, yeah, it's, it's been turned, the, the, the institutions have been turned against us by both, you know, ideological factions that are, you know, sincerely and sincerely American and anti-American, one in the same, and they're being fueled by foreign interests that want to destroy us because they don't like our place in the world order, most notably China. Yeah, I, I, I tend to I tend to agree with you. And I think, um, you know, I, I, I'm encouraged to see everyone uh, becoming aware, but uh, it definitely makes me uh, it makes me uh, concerned to see maybe how far they might go to throw people off balance <laughs> you know as we as there's no limit to what they will do right this is you know i i touched on this ever so briefly 
in the opening monologue, which is that we are involved in an information war, okay? There's no need to kill the soldiers tomorrow if the kids sterilize themselves today. I believe that in a literal sense. It wasn't a joke. And so, uh, like, it is, there's no limit to what they'll do because the whole entire point here is that the alternative is nuclear war, right? And so if it's nuclear war or subversive activity, believe me when I tell you, there's no, there's no, limit to the depths of the depravity to which they will sink in the information war if they can if they can be seen as avoiding nuclear war by doing it there's an argument to be made that that's a more humanitarian thing for them to do right and so i think uh you know if, if they famously quote vladimir putin in saying that you know the next world war will be fought with ones and zeros or something to that effect um and uh i don't think that that's a unique perspective in any sense but that seems to be what's going on right you, 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 the information war, the, the, the costs of kinetic warfare have become so high that, you know, it, it's almost unthinkable to do, that both sides would suffer so catastrophically that the idea of doing it is just preposterous, right? You know, the United States and, you know, the United States, I think, would lose in a war against Russia and China simultaneously. But, <laughs> like, what would happen to Russia and China in the course of that? Well, certainly nothing that they'd want to have happen to them, right? And so if you want to stop America from having its place in the world order, you have to find some other means of doing that, right? They might they might come out, you know, victorious in the war in the sense that we might stop fighting before they do, but it would be catastrophically destructive for both countries and, and for the whole world. I mean, if, you know, Three nuclear powers just start unloading everything they have on each other. You know, China has, you know, 1.4 billion people. There might be a few of them left, but it will not be China anymore. Right. And you're like, you know, they're ethno-nationalists. They, they, have, a, they have a real interest in the survival and existence of their unique ethnic group. And so they're not, I don't think that they're at all anxious to have that eventuality ensue. And so they'll do literally anything in, in terms of information warfare. And I don't think there's going to be any, you know, limit to the depths of their depravity. And of course, they have the Democrat Party on their side. And these people are, you know, raving lunatics. They they, they know no depths either. And so I don't think that, uh, I think once you think that they've reached the worst level, they will shock you yet again. And they, and that it will be impossible to conceive of the, the third and fourth order of this. Because, you know, you know when they started... <laughs> You know, the idea of like transgenderism being something that they were explicitly pushing on kids was really hard to imagine even five years ago. Right. It went from, oh, you know, gay people just want to be left alone in the privacy of their own bedrooms and be able to go visit one another in the hospital to lock Kim Davis up because she won't put her name on the marriage license that will be issued by some other official in Kentucky to transgender bathrooms, to, uh, you know, trans people belong here, trans people belong here, we love trans people. I mean, like, this is the, the, the lunacy that it's at now. What is it going to be in five years if it's not stopped? Well, I, I'm really not looking forward to finding out, friend. Yeah, I have to say, and I think as it dawns on people that the stakes are getting higher and higher, particularly, like you said, like with the information warfare and just the technology that allows um, that that mechanism to be more effective. Um, I think, like you said, I don't. I think five five years from now, we think it's bad now. I think it's going to be hard to imagine, and I, th- and I hope people start to realize the, uh, you know, 
the, the, the depth of the stakes that we're, that we're facing. And, you know, and, and, and again, you know, like, like we started this off with about, uh, the military and, you know, service, uh, by soldiers and, you know, it, all, all their sacrifice will be for nothing if we don't appreciate, um, you know, what they've sacrificed it for rather than what they're trying to rewrite history as, you know, and I think that's, um, uh, it's been very pertinent to me, especially since uh, 2016 when they were trying to tear all those statues down about history. And they did that all over the country, not only in the, the you know, the East Coast or the West or in the in the East Coast and the, in the South where they're trying to tear down Confederate statues. They're taking down like Spanish, you know, Spanish explorers. And I mean, all, all you know, they're, they're trying to race history and yeah, um, they want to go they want to go to year zero you know that's the, that's the whole thing and you know and we said it then i mean I, I when they started in with the confederate monuments i mean i i was warning about this before i even got into you know the whole all right thing when they started taking down the confederate flags in the wake of the dylan roof thing and whatever it was 2014 or 2015 i was like they're not going to stop here <laughs> you know these people are crazy and sure enough, you know, next thing you know, they're going after Christopher Columbus and, and Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln. I mean, you know, you're 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 this anti-racist warrior who's really upset about black people being oppressed. And you're like, you know, that that Lincoln guy, he, he's got to go. And I'm like, hey, wait a second. That was my idea. And so, you know, these people are there's no there's no they don't reach a point of satisfaction. Yeah, you know? they're cocaine addicts, not dope fiends. You know, and I don't know if everybody gets that reference, but, you know, in drugs, it's like. You know, there's drugs that you reach a point of satisfaction in and you stop. You know, crackheads, they don't, right? Crackheads are like, another hit, another hit, another hit, another hit, another hit until something intervenes to stop them from doing it, you know? And that's what they are. They're, they're, they're crackheads. And so political crackheads, I should say. Not all of them are literally smoking crack, but, um, you know, there's no probably no shortage of them are. And so I thank you very much for the call, my friend. I, I am going to move on, but I really do appreciate your uh, your insights here, and I uh, I wish you a wonderful evening. 217-688-1433. If you'd like to be on the program, and the more you talk, the less I have to. So please to give us a call. Oh, real Tony Soprano, you're a nice guy. He says, testing, testing, everyone send Chris money, 1433. Thank you very much. Um, uh, fellow White says, shekel for a good goy. Um, Shell Burns says, hi, Chris, uh, $5. And... Um, uh, Love you, long time, big boy. Uh, says maybe next time for three dollars. Well, that is um, that's really something. Uh, so congratulations on getting me to say that on the radio, sir. Two one seven six eight eight one four three three. If you would like to be on the program, and the more you talk, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. And now that my phones are working, I imagine uh, I'm not looking at the call logs, but it's entirely conceivable that some of you called in. And sat there and were like, I hear nothing, and you hung up. So go ahead, you can call back in, and you'll hear me this time. Now that my friend has, uh, now that my friend has endeavored to uh, to clarify the problem. So let's see. Yeah, everything is uh, everything seems to be working out okay. All right. What did I? Is that my? This is my headphones. Did that? That's what happened. Okay. So as I was saying with Mister uh, with Mister Hall over here, Logan Hall. Over at American Mind is asking the question why won't or he's answering the question why won't Republicans move on from Trump and he's the first paragraph he says Trump's era was and probably is the last time flyover country will ever see executive representation in Washington again looking ahead to 2024 we should ask have the voters in that overlooked reason region so breezily dismissed time and time again changed in any marked way are they ready to move on 
If anything, they've become even more alienated and disgusted by the Washington establishment than they were in 2016. In their eyes, there's no better way to show disdain for the ruling elite than casting their lot with Trump. That was their motivation eight years ago, and that's the motivation now. Die-hard support for the former president in many cases is symbolic. It's an act of defiance. It's the biggest middle finger forgotten Americans can give to the system they believe has failed them. And maybe that symbolism is all they feel they have left. Turn my fan down here so I'm not ruining the audio quality for you fine folks. Could any other national leader show up to a place like East Palestine, Ohio, and be met with a groundswell of adoration? These Ohioans, they have been targeted for destruction by globalist politicians on both sides of the aisle for decades. They see that Trump is not a politician in the Trump traditional sense. He is as comfortable golfing at Mar-a-Lago as he is walking through the beaten down and deserted communities in the Midwest. He listens to locals and makes them feel heard. He's someone who has lived the American dream and wants to help make their home a place where the American dream becomes achievable again. Trump's unique way of connecting with these individuals is unrivaled. Despite his background as a real estate developer and TV star, Trump has a gut-level understanding of the people and places that were sacrificed on the altar of progress. But progress for whom? For the institutional GOP? Economic progress? For the institutional DNC? Cultural progress? Trump, more than any other Republican, speaks to this American carnage. And because he recognizes it across party lines, he's able to channel frustration better than any other Republican or Democrat today. Against the presumptions of the elite media, most loyal Republican voters do not view claims of election fraud as tantamount to treason. They take it for granted that Trump had the election stolen from him, and they expect the Democrats to do it again. They expect Democrats to pull out all the stops, to lie, to cheat, to do whatever it takes. The base is also a lot more fired up and energetic than their elected representatives, which is why those voters see Trump, rather than being constrained by himself, as being constrained by the modern political order. The Republican base has watched as Democrats rip up the Constitution, stomp on it, and then light it on fire while they laugh at elected Republicans who don't dare get in their way because of deference to proceduralism. Some even go so far as to suggest that January 6th was a net positive. No, not over-dramatized, not disorganized protests gone awry, a net good. It was a reminder that their concerns won't be ignored. Trump is a wrecking ball. Trump destroyed multiple Republican political dynasties, shattered GOP neocon ideology, and tossed out the old guard to the wind. The Bushes, the Cheneys, the Romneys, and the McCains don't even hide the fact that they are now de facto Democrats. From the perspective of the traditional GOP, Trump's real crime was pulling the curtains back on the Uniparty. What's more important, exposing and humiliating the regime or trying to improve it from within? That remains to be seen. Trump supporters, however, seem to agree with the former. So what's to prevent the deep state from fortifying another election or spying on the next Republican president or hampering a GOP administration with dubious investigations and endless fake scandals or impeaching them for no reason or deplatforming them from social media or removing their voice from the public square? or raiding their home? Would other candidates still be in the race if they were facing jail time and an unprecedented multi-state effort to weaponize the justice system and lock them up on bogus charges to prevent them from running?
with the full weight of the Leviathan against him. Trump remains in the battle. After 2016, the regime struck back. Exposed for what they are, the left, along with their partners in the status quo right, will do anything to anyone for any reason if they feel their political project is in jeopardy. This corrupt establishment won't leave Trump alone and continues to throw the book at January 6th political prisoners or anyone else they deem a threat to their power. If the regime can't move on from Trump, why should Trump voters be expected to move on? For every one of his faults, Trump was always forgotten America's champion. And for the time being, it doesn't look like that will change. As his favorite saying goes, in reality, they're not after me, they're after you. I'm just in the way. This continues to be a popular meme catchphrase in conservative circles, but it rings true. Slick ads, fundraising records, and consultants speak won't change the way the base feels about President Trump. Politics as usual hasn't worked against him since he came down the escalator in 2015, and it won't work now. Whether or not he can prevail in a national election remains a question. But so far as his party is concerned, the people chose him before, and the people are likely to choose him again. 217-688-1433. If you would like to be on the program, and the more you tell the less I have to, so please do give us a call. I really enjoyed that, and I hope that you did too. Um... I, uh, like I said, I understand all too well legitimate complaints about Trump. I, uh, I am not particularly satisfied with the outcome of the Trump administration. You know, somebody was heckling me on Twitter. I shouldn't call him heckling. I mean, he was, you know, he was saying something that, uh, was not negative, that was not positive towards my point of view. It wasn't heckling. And he pointed out that uh, I found myself without Internet access as a consequence of what the federal government did during the Trump administration, you know. And he said to me, um, any of you who were watching me on the uncensored production on election night 2016, you might remember I was kind of bent out of shape. I thought Clinton was going to win. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was not looking forward to that prospect, you know. And the guy said to me, oh, you thought that you were going to end up in jail on a Clinton administration, and this was uh, concerning to you. And what ended up happening under Trump? Well, I told him, you might remember, friend, if you were watching that night, it wasn't jail I was worried about under Hillary Clinton. <laughs> I was worried about something far, uh, far more permanent than that. And so, you know, my opinion had always been, that Trump's primary job was to keep Hillary Clinton from being president. He did a pretty good job of that, matter of fact. Now, he, you know, ostensibly failed to prevent Joe Biden from becoming president. And, you know, that's something I'm not very happy about, indeed. But uh, I think after uh, seeing Joe Biden stumble around for a couple of years, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's well past time to uh, get rid of that guy. I ain't going to miss Joe Biden one bit. I don't know about you, you know. And the other thing I'll say is that, like, whether or not you, you actually care about Donald Trump or anything that he's going to do is almost irrelevant to the point, right? Imagine all, like, the culture jamming, all the energy that's going to be behind that guy, right? You, you say to Trump supporters, you know, you might be able to, you know, say, ah, the hell with him now, you know, before the primary's over, okay? But after the primary's over, presuming that he is the candidate, okay, if Donald Trump is the Republican nominee for president of the United States and you're on, say, Twitter and you're against Trump, uh, my friends, 
you're not going to make friends, okay? As a matter of fact, you'll make some friends. You'll make friends the way Bill Crystal makes friends, matter of fact, okay? Go on Twitter. Go look at Bill Crystal. You'll see me comment on his stuff from time to time. I have a lot of fun with that. <laughs> you go against those people. Or if you go against Trump, those people are not going to see you as going after Trump. They're going to see you as going after them because they believe the thing, right? The 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 idea that um you know they're not after him they're after you and that he's just standing in the way well then if you go after him they're gonna think you're going after them and they're not gonna take that lightly at all and so rah 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 trump okay that's my that's my angle and i'm sticking to it and i hope that uh i hope that you guys can join me in the fun because how much fun did we have in 2015 and 2016 honestly Seriously, do you think that you're going to have do you think that you're going to have that kind of fun again anytime soon if not in 2024? I have my doubts, okay? So, I would encourage you to consider that. Now, I'm going to try to pull up here. Let's see here. I am not going to be able to play this whole thing. But I will play for you a short version. I'm going to play for you a part of a conversation I had with a very interesting man by the name of Tom Woods. Uh, let's see here. Audio. It's not under interviews? I'm sorry. I, sh- I should have had this up. You know, I have all of these many, many clips, you know. And a lot of them are unfit for this show. And so I can't play them here. But I have... Where is, oh, it's not that one. Um, is it in, actually, hang on, I will, f- I'll find it this way. Star Woods. I'm going to play part of the Tom Woods interview. This was, I found this the other day and I actually listened to it because it's been so long. I don't think it's on his website anymore. I think that he took it down, matter of fact. Because uh, I am um, somebody he referred to while I was in jail as, um, I, what did he say? I don't want to put words in his mouth, actually, so I'll just, I'll just won't do it. But um, while, I was, uh, while I lacked internet access in 2017, I should say, um, I think that he removed this from his website is my understanding. But uh, it's actually a pretty good listen. And I will republish the entire thing the at Tom some Woods point. Show, episode fourteen hundred eight. Prepare uh, to set uh, fourteen hundred eight. Oh, that's uh, almost sounds like something else. Hang on a second. Your daily dose of liberty education no. starts here. No. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, by far one of the most dangerous economic misconceptions of the twentieth century is that the financial crisis of two thousand eight was caused by deregulation. Unregulated capitalism. Well, this is not what we want. We don't want to talk about unregulated capitalism. We're going to... Uh, in his book, Liberalism, which he wrote in the 1920s, which I recommend all of you. We go into the future is for libertarians. Oh, this These is not it. Remar- this is a different thing. That is not me. Are you kidding me? All right. Well, apparently I have another episode of the Tom Woods show here. So I am not, uh, not going to be able to... Uh, well, maybe this is it. Maybe this is it. I, again, I, 
I don't mind mentioning names. Yeah, this is it. Okay. You know, uh, every four years at least, roughly half the population goes out to vote. Whether you've done something that's legally actionable or not. But it's not just... Uh, You know, all sorts of gray area as to, you know, what counts as a violation of your rights. And there's no solid... Apparently, this is a, we're told anyway, this is an obsession with some people and some groups. But what are they talking about with white male privilege? And is that something that you, Christopher Cantwell, have? I, I, I want to get some of it. I've been shopping around, and I just <laughs> haven't been able to find it, unfortunately. Um, that, you know, I, I thought that because I was white and male and lived in America that I would sort of just have everything handed to me. But as it turns out, like, I have to fight tooth and nail for everything. And uh, as a matter of fact, in some cases, I'm actually discriminated against because I'm a white male. Uh, so I don't, I don't know what it is that they think I'm getting for the on the strength of my uh, uh, gender and skin color because I'm I have yet to find it, unfortunately. And of course, this is a concept that feeds into all kinds of status nonsense. I mean, you look what they've done to their education system. They won't, in some cases, do heterogeneous grouping in the schools because that would have a racially disparate outcome. And so this must be unjust. Or if there's a a test where the test scores are racially disparate, it must be unjust. So in some cases, like it's the fireman's exam, in some cities they've made the test so stupid that basically everybody gets a hundred on it, so that there, so then there is no, there is no uh, discrepancy. Now and then this feeds into problems that do lead into statism. And now for some reason I'm drawing a blank on that. I was going to say that New York official who was caught with a prostitute, but that you know who would that be, right? But I yeah, can't. I, 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 can't was, I think he was an t- attorney general, and he was on MSNBC with his own show for a while. Elliot Spitzer. Elliot Spitzer. Thank you. I'm pretty sure I remember reading some years ago there was some department store chain in New York. That you know, if they think you're engaging in shoplifting, they you know they ask you to leave. Well, apparently they'd been spying on this particular chain, and it turned out they'd been disproportionately asking black customers to leave. So this is ipso facto evidence of racism, I- ipso facto, without even having to investigate it. It, it just apparently shoplifting is 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 uh, equally distributed among the population. Now, why would that be an a priori judgment? How would we know that without just examining? what people do and what exactly happened and what the numbers were in that case. It, it really displays the simplistic thought process of the left, I think, that, like, they basically just, if you give them a pie chart where, you know, race is a factor in it, then any demographic disparity equals racism. You know, we, we had, uh, you know, one blogger talking about... Uh, you know, self-defense laws, uh, stand your ground being racist. And then uh, truth about guns had come out and said, well, actually, it disproportionately helps people in poor black neighborhoods, as it turns out. And that doesn't, you know, cause anybody to change their position or retract their statements or anything like that. There's no effort to be honest with these people. You know, it's, it's, they want, they, they want like an egalitarian society. They want things to be, you know, quote unquote, equal uh, under the circumstances that they have uh, perception are unequal, you know, and they and they disproportionately are concerned about race, and I and I don't understand it because I don't I don't really think about race like in my regular daily life. It's not something that really crosses my mind until these people start screaming their heads off about it, and yeah. I look at it and I'm like, well, there's a thousand other factors at work here. Why are you pinning this to race? You know the. Thomas Sowell has done such important work. He has a book, uh, Civil Rights, Rhetoric, or Reality, where he goes and shows that, in fact, 
among other things, the different racial groups happen to be distributed across the country in different patterns. They happen to be located in particular cities, particular states that have particular uh, costs of living. They're, they will be older or younger than other groups. And of course, if, a, if an ethnic group is 25 years older on average than another, it's going to have more experience at the, on the job. It's going to have more wealth. He says when you correct for all these differences, the income gap between these groups completely vanishes. When you correct for all the, the, the geographical differences, the age differences, the education differences, it disappears. So there is no privilege, so-called. There's, this, is, this, is a compl- this is an artifact of data that hasn't been adequately sifted. All right, now I want to put you on the spot here. Now, I don't know, maybe I'm going to make enemies on this, this episode. Who knows? But let's keep it fun. I want you to name me some names. I want you to tell me in your opinion, who these days is most responsible for trying to push an egalitarian agenda onto the libertarian movement and muddy what the libertarian message is supposed to be all about? Nate, give me some names. Well, right now, I, uh, I, I remember your epic Twitter battle with Antonio Bueller, I think, really set a lot of this off. I mean, the, the battle between, you know, the thick and thin libertarians of the left and right libertarians has been going on for a, a long time. But I, I think that a lot of this really got set off between me and Antonio Bueller on Facebook back in, like, October, and it has built up this war. So there's Steve Horowitz, there's... Uh, there's uh, Jeffrey Tucker has now jumped into it, surprisingly enough. And, Most and, and unfortunate. Sure you've got Students for Liberty, you've got the Foundation for Economic Education, uh, and these people are, you know, involved in lots of other different things, and a lot of people don't readily recognize it, right? So uh, they, they get involved in other things, and they shift other people. I get scared because I see people who I thought were philosophically sound libertarians repeating left-wing race and sex propaganda or or even going full-on economic whack job on me, uh, you know, entirely too frequently. And when we see people like Tucker jump ship, you know, that really gives a lot of credibility to, to, to these folks who are doing it. But Bleeding Heart Libertarians uh, is, is one, of course, there's the Alliance of the Libertarian Left, doesn't make any secrets of what they're doing. Um, Center for a Stateless Society, any number of people over there, which is, you know, an anti-capitalist blog. And, uh, you know, these things are given, you know, serious, unfortunately, given weight within the libertarian community, and it, and it scares the life out of me to see, uh, you know, these people getting speaking engagements. One, one, you know, relatively obscure blogger who shall remain men- nameless for the purpose of this was actually featured at Liberty Fest NYC just, you know, last weekend, which is, a, which is an event that used to host speakers like you and me and Adam Kokesh and Stefan Molyneux. Uh, and and now they're hosting left left wing lunatics, and uh, it's it's really frightening. Well, frankly. let me just say in defense of the organizers of that event that um, I was invited to that. I was actually invited to be the mystery speaker, and I thought wouldn't that, wouldn't wouldn't uh, our friend love that if if the mystery speaker at a women's liberty event turns out to be not only a man but me whom she can't stand? But I, I couldn't do it. It wasn't enough notice, and uh, and they did they did try to get Adam to do that as well. And I, you know, and I've been invited to that numerous times. But I, I understand completely what you're saying. And moreover, what I find bizarre is it's the same sort of perverse priorities that you see in mainstream America, or well, I don't want to say normal Americans don't care about this stuff. But like on a site like Politico or something, the priorities are this: that yeah, it's okay for you to advocate war on the basis of. 
BS propaganda, right, that any idiot can see through. That's fine. And that leads to wholesale slaughter. But that's okay. That's a policy difference you and I have. But if somebody finds that you said something insensitive 20 years ago, you'll never be heard from again. Now, how could – look, if, if I belong to a despised minority group, I would so vastly prefer – somebody who just says something insensitive about me 20 years ago to somebody who wants to bomb me. Like, what, what am I missing here, Chris? Well, I, I think the first thing that we're missing is that this will not, um, you know, expel people from the world, right? The, 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 the fact of the matter is, is that what really jams people up with this is when they backpedal and apologize, which I think is, you know, the worst thing that you can do. When somebody calls you a racist, they think the best thing you can say is, so what, now get on with your argument, you know? I, you know, people call me a racist and a sexist and a misogynist and a bigot, and I'm like, okay, now make your point, because all you did was launch an ad hominem attack at me. You haven't even refuted anything I've said. You don't win the argument by doing this. And I think if more people did that, then, you know, these, these attacks would really lose a lot of their steam. You know, me, people have been trying to run me out of the liberty movement for, for years now, and uh, I just didn't, you know, I, people laugh at me for bragging about Alexa ranks, but I just bypassed the Free State Project on TopLibertarian.com. I'm actually right below you right now, Mr. Woods. Ah, well, so, how about that? Well, lucky for you, I'm too busy making Ron Paul homeschool videos to be at full octane, but but good for I you. Know, I know, I know. <laughs> good for you, though. I, I know that if you, were, if you were writing... And so that was the part that I really wanted to get at. I love hearing that. You know, this is from... The, the apparent date of this was May 14th, 2014, and uh, that is very satisfying for me to hear. Um, I said back then, I'm like, look, these people are going to call you a racist, and then what, you're going to, uh, you're going to back down? Uh, no, don't do that. That does not work, because you're, just, you're, you're putting blood in the water, and they smell it. And that's what they've been doing for a very long time. And... I thought at the time that, like, once you stood up to them that, you know, that they would stop doing it. That turns out not to be the case. It turns out that they they seem to have a sincere ethnic animus. Oh, apparently it is there. So, um, uh, episode 157, apparently it is still on TomWoods.com. I am incorrect about it having been removed. Thank you, uh, person with a hat in the, uh, in the Odyssey chat for informing me of this. Man Animal asks... I'll be watching the shows on Odyssey for the time being, but do you, if I need a paid or SP members account on Rumble to comment, Rumble said I couldn't comment, uh, Rumble said I could comment if I verify my account, but I still can't. Figured I'd ask in case others might want to know. Sorry if you've already clarified this before. Well, no, if you're having trouble with it, that's very interesting for me to know, sir. Um, I am not... Of the, uh, I'm not under the impression that you need to pay to comment on Rumble. And maybe he, he remarks that there's only three messages in this chat, even though it says that like 40-something people are watching. Um, I don't know if uh, anybody on Rumble wants to give me information about why my other friend can't comment here, but I'll take a peek at the chat over on Rumble, and, uh, and I'll be certain to relay the information along. I do know that you can comment on Rumble because people are watching on Rumble and they are commenting and they're not paying me. But if they want to pay me, I believe that Rumble does have that option. And so if you want to throw money at me, I'm trying to I make it so easy for you to do. You got the Rumble thing that they've got you like right where you type. There's a dollar sign there, at least in the computer web browser. I don't know about the mobile thing. 
Um, and then I've, you can pay me on Odyssey now, which is great. Thank you very much for everybody who did that. And you've got the givesendgo.com slash SPM. And then at um, surrealpolitics.com slash join, then you can become a member, and it's 10 bucks a month, unless you use code AGENDA33, in which case it's only like $6.70 or something like that, which is great, you know. And then if you become a member at surrealpolitics.com slash join, your membership with that AGENDA33 code, since it's only $6.70 or whatever, um, then if you buy a T-shirt, they were $25 before. Well, it's still $25 if you're not a member. But if you want to buy a T-shirt, you know, it's not a Surreal Politics T-shirt. It's for the old, the other show. But um, you could buy a T-shirt and a membership for less than it costs to buy a T-shirt for a non-member. And so that would be a great idea. Rumble probably wants the guy to verify his account via phone number is what um, uh, J.E. says over on uh, over on Rumble. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate that. And so I think he's saying that maybe they want you to... Uh, verify with the phone number, I think, is probably what that is. And so that makes sense. I think I did have to give Rumble a phone number. So that, that would that would make sense. And so that option is available. Yeah, yeah no, well, might just need some time, he says. Okay, well, I hope that this gets straight out. Who is the one who said it first? F you all pay us both. Um, no, I'm the only one who's going to make money here, 14 Reasons. Uh, you, you go make money somewhere else. What are you talking about? Sorry. All right. So that was in the chat and has nothing to do with anything that anybody on the podcast is listening to, for sure. 217-688-1433 is your last chance to get on the phones. And so if you'd like to go and exercise that opportunity, go ahead and do it. I'll pull up one more news story. I'll do one more news story. And then I'm going to check the chat one more time. And then we're going to go. But... uh, Logan Hall, why won't Republicans move on from Trump at American Mind? You might want to bookmark that. You might want to read it. And um, let's see. Let's see. Yeah. What else do we got? No, 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 no. Oh, okay. Well, you know, you keep on hearing Joe Biden tell us that the number one terrorist threat in America is white supremacy, of course. And he is quick to remind us that transphobia is anti-Semitic, okay? And anti-Semitism is, as you know, also white supremacy because, you know, everybody else just loves the Jewish people. And so you get the idea. White supremacy, transphobia, anti-Semitism, these are all Joe Biden boogeymen, okay, in order to gin up terrorist threat because— you know, during the Bush administration, some of you guys are young. You don't remember this. There was a time we had something in America used to be they, they called them civil rights and stuff. And now civil rights means you can um, molest children. It meant something completely different in 2000. And so prior to the year 2001, civil rights was something completely different, it had nothing to do with molesting children. Um, and so you had like y- y- there were rules like the FBI was a law enforcement agency in theory, and they didn't spy on you. They just if you committed a crime, they'd come and they'd arrest you. It's almost like cops, but on a federal level. And they don't do that anymore at all. Like you could be a criminal. You just can't criticize the regime. It's, it's totally different now. But back then, you know, they had rules and stuff. And anyway, and so now the reason that they call you terrorists is what I mean to say by this. The reason that they call you terrorists is that once they say you're a terrorist, then they get to break all the rules. If you're just a run-of-the-mill criminal, then they, you know, then you're basically they like you, as a matter of fact. But you know, there's rules that they have to follow to prosecute you. It's a completely different thing if you're a terrorist, and so that's why they call you a terrorist. It has nothing to do with anything that you're actually doing. It's something that they do in order to, you know, persecute you. 
And so with that in mind, you know, it's something of some significance, I'd say. The Target was all like, oh, my God, we better move the tuck-friendly children's bathing suits to the back of the store because these Christians are really bent out of shape about us promoting the molestation of their children. And so everybody's like, oh, my God, that's terrorism that you were complaining about the child molestation display at the major department store. What's wrong with you religious fanatics? And uh, so they did this, and they just moved into the back of the store, and they were like, okay, look, you have to walk an extra, like, 300 feet, not even, to go get your tuck-friendly bathing suit for your child before you, you know, before you you transgender him. That's all. And then you go stop by CVS, you get the, the puberty blockers, and then you can, uh, you go stop by Home Depot and, you know, get the knife and then remove everything. You know, it's you can still do it all. You just have to go to the back of the store. But, you know, you have to understand, you think that, you know, the uh, religious people in this country are bent out of shape about things. The transgender people are dangerous, right? Because they're all going to kill themselves. So they, it's not like they have anything to live for. And so when they found out that they had to like, you know, walk a little further, they were like, no way, no way. You have to like the whole entire point of this thing is to put it at the front of the store so that the kids will be exposed to it without any effort. If they have, you know, people have to go seek this stuff out. Who's going to do that? You know, we have to get the, we have to bombard them with it in kindergarten is the whole point. And so when they found out that they were like, hey, you know, we're going to make you walk 25 feet, they were like, all right, you people are dead. And so uh, they were hit with bomb threats after, uh, quote, turning their back on the LGBTQP community, according to Tyler Durden over at Zero Hedge. At least five targets in multiple states received bomb threats Friday over company executives pulling the pride collection section because of mounting boycotts leading to multiple stores being evacuated as police and the FBI search for the explosives. Quote, Target is full of redacted cowards who turn their back on the LGBT community. He left out the P, I'm sorry, the LGBTP community and decided to cater to homophobic right-wing redneck bigots who protested and vandalized their store, reads a threatening email sent to several Target locations in Ohio and one in Pennsylvania. Cleveland 19 News reports. We won't stand idly by as the far right continues to hunt us down. We are sending you a message. We placed a bomb in your following targets. We will continue to bomb your targets until you stop cowering and bring back your LGBT merchandise. LGBT P merchandise. One shopper told 19 News, I know a lot of people around here are not a fan of the LGBT, that kind of stuff. Me personally, I mean, whatever. I never thought someone would go as far as a bomb threat. And Utah local media outlet KUTV said bomb threats were made to Target stores in Layton, Salt Lake, Taylorsville, and Provo. On Thursday, one day before the bomb threat was made, we reported a Fox News insider confirmed Target stores across the South and rural America removed controversial LGBT-themed products ahead of a June Pride Month to avoid further backlash. Some products ranged from tuck-friendly swimsuits for transgender people to gender-fluid coffee mugs. The insider said the reasoning behind such an abrupt move is to avoid the kind of backlash which Bud Light has received in recent weeks. As we noted last week, as um, I should say, as uh, uh, Tyler Durden at um, Zero Hedge noted last week, corporations have freedom of speech under the First Amendment, but to have it, it, but have to understand if their political ideologies don't align with customers, and people also have the freedom of speech to voice their opinion. That's why corporations should probably stay out of identity politics or risk pissing off both sides. Because what Target did by moving the Pride products back and scaling down the section 
will likely spark outrage in the trans community. And, you know, how are you going to stay in business in 2023 if you can't sell tuck-friendly swimsuits to transgender toddlers? I mean, with that kind of market share, I mean, these people just, you know, they wield more power than, you know, anybody. And the target bomb threat comes after California Governor Gavin Newsom, a diehard progressive, tweeted CEO of Target Brian Cornwell selling out to the LGBTQ community to ex- is telling, I'm sorry, <laughs> I was like, wait a second, did, did, did this guy start making sense all of a sudden? No, not by any stretch of the imagination. I should say that more correctly. CEO of Target Brian Cornwell selling out the LGBTQ community to extremists is a real profile and courage, sarcastically, obviously. This isn't just a couple of stores in the South. There's a systemic attack on a gay community happening across the country, Newsom said. Did Newsom's tweet incite the radical left's target, uh, attack on Target? And congrats to Target's executives who have managed to cower, to uh, managed to anger conservatives and progressives. And so that's the end of the story there. And so, um, I don't know, nothing surprising there. I mean, transgender people threatening violence, imagine that. Who would have known anything? Who would have thought that they were ever capable of that? They're, they're the, you know, they're not just the love and they're the people who need to be loved and tolerated, for F's sake. And so, I don't know where anybody would come up with the idea that, you know, transgender people might blow things up. I mean, they're probably not going to blow things up. They're like, you know, you'd be like, hey, listen. Just don't blow up the store yet. Wait a little while and you'll kill yourself and then we won't have to deal with this at all. I think it's probably the, uh, probably the idea. So now we have a couple of callers on the line. So I'll go ahead and I'll pick up your calls and then, uh, and then we'll do this thing. Uh, caller, you are on um, the Surreal Politics podcast. What can I do for you? Chris, uh, I know you like to talk about China a lot on your podcast. And how it's a big threat. Have you ever heard of this book by... A CCP official when he didn't call America against America. America against America. I think I, I, I'm tempted to say that I heard you mention it in the Telegram chat, but other than that, I'm unfamiliar with this work. Well, yes, I did mention it in the Telegram chat. So I first heard about it through Stryker um, talking about this book. It's pretty big. It actually hasn't been officially translated into English, but you can find English translations out there. Essentially, Wang Yingyin was a, a liberal in China, and he was, at one point, was going to help implement liberal reforms into the country. So, America saw that and invited him to the United States to help teach him about America, so how great America is and why China should go through these liberal reforms. So, he went to America physically. And he completely changed his mind. He came back to China, locked himself in his room for like a month or so to write this book. And it's a very interesting, all the problems America has and all the problems with liberalism. <clears throat> He's the guy that's in charge of um, banning sissy boys and media. He's uh, responsible for all the people would think there's kind of draconian... Um, social credit system, where it's pretty much like if you walk, help an old lady cross the street, you get social credit points added. It's a it's very interesting read, because it's nice to look at the issues America's having from the outside of the So, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that you can 
sort of give me a crisper point to re- respond to. So you, this guy was a was a Chinese person who was very pro-America. He came to America and was like, this place is falling apart. We don't want to be anything like them, is, is the idea. Yeah, he's actually one of the central committees for the All Chinese Communist Party. He's actually a policy maker. And so, um, and so he went over. He came over here and was like, um, "Yeah, this is the type of place where uh, gender freaks blow up targets and are apologized to." Uh, we should probably have a social credit score. Yeah, that's what the uh, his idea for the social credit system came from. America. You're saying this is a direct response that. to America, that the, the social credit score was actually this guy's idea and it was a direct response to, to him, what he witnessed over here? Yep. He was actually brought over here by the U.S. State Department. That's an interesting theory. I mean, you know, it's, it's a thing that, you know, the funny thing is that, like, I have some problems with... Um, I have some uh, serious concerns about China, but they're very rarely the type of things that we hear the Republican Party complaining about. They're like, they don't have any freedom over there. I'm like, yeah, well, you know, you know, they, they're doing a better or job of maintaining order than you. And the, when the Chinese are plagued with race riots, um, you know, then then I'll wonder if they're uh, if they're governing competently. In the meantime, we do. So maybe you guys should go out and shoot the criminals. Um, and so I, I think. Um, I can see the uh, I, I can I can see why somebody would uh, reach these conclusions. I would say. Yeah, that's the point he made about America is like the political parties, how they're not really political parties. For I'm sorry, example, they're not really political parties. Yeah, not in the traditional sense. Like he's using the uh, Communist Party of China, for example. So they have like party platform. Uh, set of principles, right? So if somebody who's a, an official card-carrying member of the Chinese Communist Party, they have to adhere to those principles, and if they don't, they have to be able to test and make sure they, they stay to it. But if somebody's a, like a member of the Republican Party, they're not really like a, a member of the Republican Party, just a Republican Party voting. Well, that's, you they know, that's that's, like a, that's a worthwhile voter. point that, like, you know, and, and actually, um, it, it's interesting that you say that. It's probably a bit more than we're going to resolve today. But, um, you know, I've, I've remarked before that the two-party system is, it's functionally just the, the simple vehicle which the state provides for political activity. It's, you know, you, you can you can be on the red team or the blue team, and otherwise you're a, you're a you know, you're a party in name only non-participant. Um, but in the sense of like what a political party typically is in the, the history of the world, I actually agree with that, that, that sentiment that, you know, if you have a political party, there's supposed to be, you know, standards involved. And the structure of the party system today uh, in the United States uh, does not provide for that in the slightest. Anybody can register as a member of the party and they can't. Um, unless they're, you know, have their right to vote revoked, you can't lose your registration as, say, a Republican primary voter, and that is um, that is a relevant thing. My friend, you have some really bad background noise, and it's interfering with the show, so I'm going to let you go and move on to another caller. But I thank you very much for the call. And that is an interesting point. And if you if you have uh, better audio quality another time, you want to discuss it at greater length, I'll be happy to. Caller, you're on Surreal Politics. What can I do for you? 
Hey, Chris. Um, so you had just been talking about, you know, I guess Target's latest antics. And I know, like, conservatives, they've gotten, you know, they've rightly gotten mad at, like, Bud, Bud um, well, Anheuser-Busch and Target. But it doesn't appear to me that, like, at least mainstream conservatives realize that, you know, this is a much larger issue. It's not these one or two companies that, you know, first of all, all these corporations are going to go with the path of least resistance and go with power. And all these corporations are being pretty much forced um, to comply with the ESG with an ESG rating. And if you don't, I think kind of the mechanism they use to make it work. I think they use like uh, you know companies like BlackRock or hedge funds like BlackRock, Vanguard. They can you know they can punish these publicly traded companies you know if they don't have a high enough ESG score. So I mean, I just I was I guess I wanted to get your thoughts on you know what can you really do? I mean, does it make any sense to really boycott anything you know these days because i mean they're all i mean they're all moving in the same direction they might not all have the most you know they might not all put transgenders you know in advertisements for their products but they're all signing on to the same stuff even if they're doing a a little bit more subtly well you know i would say that in theory it's possible to do things it might be too late and i and i try not to entertain that prospect because the concept of it being too late leads to very dark eventualities, the, the sort of which I wouldn't want to discuss on a production like this one. And so let's just operate under the assumption that it's not. Um, assuming that it's not too late, then yes, you can do things. Uh, you know, the look, the incentives of the political ideologies involved are such that, like, why are the Democrats, the Democrats are like, you know, the left-wing party, and they're supposed to be the threat to rich people in theory, right? That's why they, you know, tank Bernie Sanders. Um, the, the, uh, the idea ought to be that, you know, the, the wealthy people in this country, the big corporations, they're supposed to favor the Republicans because they're going to have unfettered capitalism and yada, yada, yada. And so it doesn't actually work out that way, as it turns out. They are um, the, the major corporations, banking institutions, and major power centers and frankly, dominant ethnic groups are all in for the Democrat Party. And why is that? Well, because the Democrat Party will wield their power in favor of the people who put them in power and against the people who challenge their power. And that is, um, that is not the conservative way, let's say. That is not the—I um, shouldn't even say it's not the conservative way. It, it actually is. Somebody who read—what's um, the name that I'm trying to come up with now— Russell Kirk, the conservative mind, he really had a lot of things to say about this idea that, you know, just, just, you know, just let the markets run the country, this idiotic, I'm not going to call it idiotic, it's not, it's not always devoid of intellectual value, but it's, it's misguided in the extreme, this idea that you're going to, you know, run a country based on market principles is preposterous, and, and Russell, Russell Kirk certainly knew that when he wrote The Conservative Mind, which is one of the most influential books to educated conservatives. Um, but most conservatives, people who purport to be conservatives, are, are not particularly educated. They think Ayn Rand is their, is their intellectual guiding light, and that, that, that's part of the problem. Um, but anyway, they, they are operating under this assumption that it's like some kind of <clears throat> sin to interfere with the market forces. And so they're like, okay, well, I understand that you're, you're doing things that are against my interests and you're funding my political opponents. And so I'm not going to sink to their level in these types of ideas. Well, it doesn't work that way. 
And I think that part of what's so good about Donald Trump is that he doesn't harbor these illusions, right? He, or at least he doesn't, he doesn't outwardly purport to adhere to these illusions. And that is part of a not at all complete, but a much needed shift in the ideology of the right in American politics, that they need to be able to wield power in the market and to say no, like our interests override uh, whatever it is that you're attempting to do. We will use political power to further our political power and we will punish our political enemies using political power. If you're going to push transgenderism on kids, that upsets our constituents and will force you to stop doing it, you know. If you are going to fund our political opponents, then we will make sure that you don't make any more money and you won't be able to fund our political opponents anymore. That's what the Democrats do, you know. And the idea that the Democrats are disreputable for doing this and therefore we, the other side, no, we wouldn't want to be disreputable like the Democrats. No, 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 no. You know, I, um, I wonder if I could play this on this show. Maybe I'll have to, uh, maybe I will have to edit some portion of the recording out. I'm going to play this before we go, as a matter of fact. Um, you know, I said in Washington, D.C. once, what conservative would adopt the tactics of a filthy communist? And the answer that I gave to my yeah, own one question. one that wants to win. I do remember, yeah, yeah, one that wants to win, I think, right? A conservative who is sick and tired of losing his country to people who have no standards and realizes that there will be no such thing as righteousness if he does not prevail into conflict. That's who. And I think that there's an ever-growing number of people who are beginning to realize that. And that is a very hopeful thing indeed, I'd say, my friend. If there's ever a white pill to take, that's one. Um, if people start figuring that out, then, I mean, you know, this guy over at um, um, the, the, the gentleman writing about Trump earlier that I read earlier, Mr. Hall, um, he says, uh, oh, well, this would be the last time that they had ex executive representation. Well, not if the executive representation is wielded appropriately. Like the whole entire point of political power, what they need to start realizing, the Republican Party, is that the whole entire point of political power is to increase your political power. You don't sit there, you know, I used to, I quoted it very often, um, I used to listen to on satellite radio a guy by the name of Andrew Wilkow, and he used to always say, Democrats wield power, Republicans hold office, okay? And it might be preferable, indeed, that Republicans sit there, do nothing, and don't harm us and keep the Democrats out of power. That is preferable to the Democrats being in power, most certainly. But it is not the goal of political activity to hold office. That is not the goal of political activity. The goal of political activity is to wield power. And to wield power, you must maintain power, and you must use power for its own maintenance. And so that, that is what absolutely needs to happen. And if they figure that out, if they gain power and they use it to maintain their power, well, then, then, they, can, then they can fix these problems. And if they don't, then they will be shut out of political power forever. That's the whole point of the Democrat immigration plan. That's, that's the whole point of making people poorer. That's the whole point of everything the Democrats do is to make sure that they permanently control the federal government in Washington and every subdivision thereof for eternity. They will burn this country down to rule the ashes. And, um, and I would dare say that the only reputable thing to do is pull out all the stops and prevent them from accomplishing that goal. And if the Republican Party can figure that out, then fantastic. And if not, then there's going to be no more America. We're going to have to split up and there's going to be, I don't know, 10 of them, 50 of them, who knows? But um, once that happens, of course, then 
And China will be the ones running around the world telling everybody what to do, and I don't look forward to that prospect. So let's see what we can do to avoid that. Yeah, it doesn't seem like most of the GOP is willing to do that. I think maybe subconsciously that's one of the reasons people really gravitated to Trump to begin with is because um, because he did threaten to wield power, unlike you know anybody else that you know I can think of in modern history, like at least in the GOP. And you know he, did, he ended up not doing it. You know he did, he did not use the power effectively. You know he didn't reward his friends and he didn't punish his enemies. You know he kind of did the opposite of that. But um, but I think maybe that's one of the reasons he was liked um, so much is because there was there, there you know there is that prospect that he would actually wield power, unlike any of these other Republicans that we've had. Yeah, they definitely um, they there's a growing realization of this among the Republican base. But it's difficult. You know, the momentum of that is difficult to change. You know, they're conservatives, right? They're they're naturally skeptical of change, okay? And so for, for many years, decades, they've sort of been like propagandized with all this, you know, free market stuff. And the idea that they're going to upend their entire, you know, economic doctrine and start, you know, doing the types of things that are necessary, well... You know, it's not easy to undo that momentum among the even among the base. And then it's all the all the much more so among those who are actually, you know, in a position to wield the power. And then the, so the momentum of that is, well, now the, the base has to go and start, you know, replacing people at the party level and then and then work their way up to actually like get into office and, and start wielding the power. That's not a that's not a simple thing to do. And. You know, when the Democrat Party is, you know, actively trying to replace the population and uh, and make it easy for dead people to vote, uh, you know, it, it it poses a serious question as to whether or not we are too far along. But since it is 1130 and I'm talking about, you know, things going post politics, it's probably past my bedtime, friend. So I'm going to let you go. And I thank you very much for the call. Ladies and gentlemen, we do this every Monday at 930 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on Rumble and Odyssey and DLive and all these other platforms. And uh, I want to say thank you to everybody uh, who tipped me tonight. That is a very nice thing of you to do indeed. And I want to send a very special thank you to everybody who uh, is a Surreal Politics member, which you can do at surrealpolitics.com slash join. It's uh, $10 a month, but you get that promo code Agenda33. It'll uh, knock it down 33% for your first three months. That'd be a great idea for you to do. I got a Give, Send, Go campaign. If you're like, I just got to keep on giving money. Well, the the Give, Send, Go is there. You give me as much as you want. You don't even have to use a credit card. You can do the crypto thing. I've got cryptocurrency stuff over at surrealpolitics.com slash donate. Okay. And so I make it very, very easy to pay me. You could do all those things. And, uh, and you should, of course, because uh, you might account that I'm very talented and good-looking and uh, dedicated to my job and stuff. And so and people like me, they should get paid a lot of money, you might account that. And so if you do all those things, then, uh, then I'll be very happy. And I'll save your country for you. I'll do my best anyway. And uh, that would be great. And what I'll also say about this is um, one more thing. I'm going to play this clip, actually. I'm going to play this great clip. It's not the whole thing. But I do have this little piece of um, that speech of which I referred. And we'll do that before we, uh, before we take off here. As a matter of fact, hang on. I'll put that into the thing. Let me pull this up here. Uh, we tend to think this was actually this clip of it, interestingly, <laughs> is kind of amusing. Those of you who have been around for a little while, you might remember this, that I clipped out a portion of this speech to use in 
what some might say is the first iteration of Surreal Politiques, my first attempt to do a broadcast that you could listen to with your kids in the car, because I used to have to say sorry for the F all the time, and that was really getting tiresome. So I tried to do a show where we avoided the types of themes that upset payment processors and parents. And so I, uh, I, I used this clip in the intro of that uh, song, and, uh, and I still have the clip here, and I'm reasonably confident, since it was for that purpose, that there's no curse words in it, which is why I can play it here. And so I'm going to do that, and it's going to go right into the outro music, and then we will be back. I'll be back for you guys who are members, of course. I'll see you Wednesday. For those of you who don't mind all the themes that upset bankers and parents, I'll see you guys Friday, of course. And you should stay on top of all of these things. You know, I, I don't usually plug the other website, but I'll tell you. Those of you who don't understand what I'm referencing with the other show and the uncensored stuff, go over to ChristopherCantwell.net, okay? You can figure it all out there and get on the mailing list. And then if you're on the mailing list at ChristopherCantwell.net, then you will know about everything that happens. Then I'll, you know, Surreal Politics, I keep it, uh, you know, uh, there's a degree of separation there for very good reasons. But at ChristopherCantwell.net, you get on the mailing list, you give me your email, and I'll keep you apprised of everything that's happening with me, even the stuff that we wouldn't want to tell the banks, okay? So go do all of those things because I told you to, and it will improve your life and your country, and I will be back very soon. Good night. We tend to think the way to pursue political and social change is through discussion and debate. We prefer to win on the merits of our ideas and view leftist riots and revolutions as downright uncivilized behavior. The problem the honest conservative then faces, however, is that arguments, facts, decency, and righteousness mean nothing to our leftist rivals. So what conservative would adopt the tactics of a filthy communist? A conservative who is sick and tired of losing his country to people who have no standards and realizes that there will be no such thing as righteousness if he does not prevail in a conflict. <laughs>